Uh, also, New Orleans Pumps. So I wanted to talk about the New Orleans Pumps. My my favorite uh, basketball team. <laughs> More or less. Okay, are we ready? I pledge allegiance yes. to the flag you can't hear of me. the United States of America you... and to the republic oh, okay. for which it stands. I can see your chair. Welcome to Attica Shrug, the podcast about things going on in the South, Southern culture and politics. For this week, uh, I'm Wes Cheek, and with me, as always, are Chad Watson. Howdy, y'all. And David Dykes. Hello, y'all. Well, so, unfortunately, we haven't been making these for a while because nothing's been going on in the South for, for a while. And we've been and and we've also been so far apart. We haven't been able to talk. Yeah, I mean that's the thing. We were so geographically isolated that we couldn't make a podcast. But now that I'm in Tokyo, we we're finding time to do it. <laughs> and I'm in Central Mexico. And I'm in yeah, uh, yeah. the northern suburbs of Houston, Texas. Right, the free state of yeah, Texas. I mean. I think it's always good to plan out recording lots of podcasts when you're also working at a summer camp with 120 children. Where your time, you have uh, 25 hours, you have to work 25 hours a day. <laughs> mm, I think it works out well. I think it's also well to try to put these things together when you are also trying to pull together the last threads of your dissertation research. It's always good timing. Uh, which is why I'm in Japan. So... Um, I am in Japan. I'm in Tokyo staging staging my big trip. I'm going to be living in a tent in a campground in a disaster area for the next three to four weeks, so right up my alley. But right I'm now, not going to be doing in- that for another couple of years. I'll be living in a house in a disaster area for the next couple of years. At least yeah, in- yeah, pretty much. Uh, fortunately, I rent in the Garden District, so um, I, you know, no, no, no disasters because we have a high concentration of the wealthy white power elite, which is why I rent there. Um, anyway, Tokyo, yeah, Tokyo. Well, I won't digress about Tokyo. I don't like Tokyo. I don't think I could live in Tokyo. Like Tokyo really bothers me, and part of that is uh, reflexive because I. Uh, I'm going to let you know all the, the Japanese um, geographical grievances is that I lived in Kansai for a long time. And if you're from like Osaka, Kyoto, you hate Tokyo because uh, they usurped our capital, uh, unilaterally decided to steal the capital from Kyoto and move it here in 1868 and uh, to a small fishing village and decide to run it from up here. So the naked power grab, um, we hate them. They ride on the wrong side of the escalators. Which is messed what up. A backwards country to still be obsessed with things that happened in the 1860s. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I know. Am I right, guys? I yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, it's still really important. I feel like this town is in some way a monument to uh, our oppression. Are um, you just trying to tear that monument down? <laughs> well, I'm trying to tear it down by riding their public transit and eating their food and drinking their beer 
and kind of checking out their artwork and uh, things like that. So yeah, I'm trying to trying to tear them down from the inside. Like consuming them. Mm-hmm. Consuming them. That's right. <laughs> I went to. There's a new um, building, Ginza Six here. It's got Sutaya is like the blockbuster video of Japan, but it kept itself relevant somehow. Uh, and so they have a new kind of flagship store in this big building called Ginza Six. Ginza Six. And I went there yesterday. No, day before Was yesterday. It, did they stay mm-hmm. relevant by refusing to change from beta? Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're all beta males, but it's Japan, so, you know. <laughs> uh, uh, says the guy who's been beaten up by so many Japanese people. Um, anyway, but, uh, you know, so this, their, Sutaya, their flagship store, it's all, like, this is really nice, really good architecture. It's got um, Yayoi Kusama artwork in it, and then it's... This store is mostly oversized books, so it's these really incredible, like two hundred dollar architecture books and photography books. And you could like they have white gloves everywhere that you put on to look at them. And they also sell uh, like old, like real old katanas for, that are like priced in the hundreds of thousands of dollars. I don't think they actually sell them, but they have them there, so people will go to the store. But anyway, so Tokyo, I hate it, but it's all right. Well, I'm back yeah. in San Miguel. Things are good here. Except tonight I had to go up and buy a new cord because I accidentally um, plugged it in, plugged in my adapter while the end of it was hanging in the dishwater, which is <laughs> the sort of thing I do on a regular basis. <clears throat> but I went up and a new one costs about 100 bucks, which is insane. But oh, geez, also, like a Mac, a Mac cord? Exactly. Yeah, but they they acted like I was trying to rob them or something. Like they wouldn't. It took me almost an hour to buy the cord. <laughs> it's like a hundred dollar purchase. I've spent that much on pencils, pens, and paper for school at the beginning of the year. But <clears throat> because it was a single uh, purchase, I had to go through all sorts of security measures and one thing and another. Even though they were actually I'm, robbing you. Yeah, and it was. Uh, but anyway, it was at an Office Depot. Um, oh. But anyway, yeah, that was all right, though. But in general, it's really good to be back in Mexico. I found I had a little bit of culture shock when I was in the U.S. this year. It was uh, mm-hmm. strange. But partly because most of the time I was in the U.S., I was uh, living in a college dorm with a bunch of teenagers. And so <laughs> going out uh, going out into the world <laughs> always feels weird from there. Yeah, it does. I get outside of camp culture shock every year. It's like I always feel like after camp, um, I'm sure everybody that's listening will will understand what I'm talking about. When I say after camp. people listen, go to camp. Yeah. When, <laughs> when I always feel like uh, on Lost, like when Jack escaped from the island and he kind of lost his mind. That's how I feel like when, when, he, when he tried to acclimate back to the real world and... I don't even remember that plot arc now. That's how he just became like a like he just I guess I think basically became addicted to pain pills. I think was what happened. And, so you're uh, saying you're addicted to pain pills? I'm addicted yeah. to pain pills, and was, I also was that part of the Earth Two timeline. <laughs> that was part of the Earth Two timeline. Mm-hmm. Okay. Crisis on Infinite. Uh, crisis on Infinite Camps. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, well, so, you know, fortunately, like I said, for us, nothing is going on in the South right now. So um, just like any bullshit you guys want to talk about. Yeah. 
You know, I was talking to a friend yesterday about the podcast, and he said that it would be a good idea to remind people, because we always make reference to stuff we've talked about before. Hmm. Um, it seems to me that rather than Attica Shrugged, we could really just call it the Monuments Men or something like that, because <laughs> it's it's every week we talk oh, about I, I, monuments, I because that's become sort of the MacGuffin for the uh, yeah. uh, current plot line of the United States. <laughs> I mean, I'm thinking, that, what else could it have been? It could have been like, it could have been all about um, maybe the uh, Aunt Jemima um, um, mascot, if they had, uh, uh, they could have rallied around that as a point, or uh, trying to force Little Black Sambo back into public libraries, or any number of other things that they could have chosen to rally around. <laughs> Long jockeys, exactly. (laughs) Uh, I was thinking a recipe for a chicken salad. A really good (laughs) recipe for a chicken salad could have been. Um, Sweet potato pie versus pumpkin pie. Yeah. I think the difference is, though, that a lot of people would um, really know about those things and care about them, whereas these monuments... I would love to be to have access to all of these alt right people's um, uh, writing and social media and everything three years ago and see how many of them even knew what the monuments were had any if they were on their <coughs> radar whatsoever and now they're uh, talking like it's the end of Western civilization that we have thrown history in the trash can by um, uh, deciding that maybe having monuments to traders in the center of southern cities is a bad idea. Yeah, well, I mean, it's a really odd position for me, as you know, because my, my other profession, <laughs> my other profession is, uh, is like cultural heritage preservation. And, you know, one of the reasons I'm in Japan, one is to do my dissertation research, but after that, I'm going to Kyoto to work for uh, a program where we train cultural heritage people from around the world, including the Middle East, Syria, Iraq, places like that. And so, like, it's one of the things where, it's probably, uh, David, for you, like, when, if someone tried to corner you and talk to you about, like, Jewel's poetry, it's it's just, like, the, the dumbest, most absurd, facile arguments that you have to hear from people who don't care at all about like the actual work and the actual profession, the actual issues involved. It's just like, uh, just, I heard, you know, I heard a chain mail from my uncle and, um, do we have to tear down the pyramids because the slaves built them, which they didn't, but no. And, you know, it's, it's just all of the shallowest possible arguments from people who actually don't care about the issue. They care about the argument that they want to have and, aren't really allowed to have in public, are, although they're increasingly allowed to have that argument in public. Yeah, or it would be interesting to know, like, if you yeah, were to playing. go to any of these people, you were to go and say, like, okay, name, give me five important cultural Confederate people other than Jefferson Davis and Robert E. Lee. Go. Right. Like, give me, like, give me a list of important people of the Confederacy who could you? Who, yeah. How many of these people could name anybody other than Jefferson Davis and uh, Robert E. Lee? And the great Stonewall Nathan Jackson. Bedford Forrest. Oh yeah, Stonewall Jackson. I mean, yeah, maybe yeah. Nathan Bedford Forrest. Nathan, Nathan Bedford, Bedford Forrest, Forrest, the greatest. So four. Nathan Bedford Forrest. Well, Nathan Bedford Forrest. Yeah, Nathan Bedford Forrest was. 
Well, they would not want to name Nathan Nathan Bedford. I mean, that's why that's part of but my. They might. <laughs> they might. Well, that's why I said they five. That's bit. only four. I said five. Name five yeah. others. Uh, uh, the the black uh, Confederate soldiers. <laughs> yeah. That, um. The guy, yeah, the guys from Glory. Those guys. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, they were actually Confederates. Glory's about Confederate soldiers. Um, <laughs> that episode of Doc, that, Doctor did you Who. Know there's, um, you know, there's a statue of. Um, Nathan Bedford Forrest in the Tennessee State Capitol. Wow. Just, but that was for his equestrian skills. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mostly because he was such a good uh, writer, and he wrote mm-hmm. some very eloquent letters um, trying to kiss up to the people that he made his fortune buying and selling. So, yeah, I mean, the National Trust uh, put out a statement was it yesterday? The National Trust for Historic Preservation. So this, and National Trust for Historic Preservation is not a left-wing organization. They're very much in the old style of preservation. Like, uh, I think Laura Bush is still a board member, right? They are um, old-school uh, preservationists. These are big money preservationists. So just part of their statement they put out on these monuments said... While some of these monuments were erected shortly after the war by grieving Southern families to honor the valor of fallen leaders and loved ones, many more were put in place for a more troubling purpose. Decades after the war, advocates of the lost cause erected these monuments all over the country to vindicate the Confederacy at the bar of history, erase the central issues of slavery and emancipation from our understanding of the war, and reaffirm a system of state-sanctioned white supremacy. Put simply, the erection of these Confederate memorials and enforcement of Jim Crow went hand in hand. They were intended as a celebration of white supremacy when they were constructed. As recent rallies in Charlottesville and elsewhere illustrate, they are still being used as symbols and rallying points for such hate today. So even, like, if you're making an appeal to historic preservation, you're going to have to make that appeal, like, over the heads of actual preservationists and even the most kind of conservative preservation group that there is. Well, the one that they pulled down in Durham the other day that the protesters Mm -hmm. pulled down... Uh, I think that one was raised in 1924. Yeah, I believe that's correct. Did any of you see that article? It was in the New Sentinel. I think they published it today or yesterday in the past day or two about why there are not many Confederate monuments in Knoxville. And they basically... I saw you link to it, but yeah, what was was the... So basically the, the short of it was that East Tennessee was... Very like there was a lot of pro union elements, and they talked about really the biggest Confederate, the biggest Confederate monument in Knoxville was the Confederate Soldiers Monument in one of the cemetery, one of the cemeteries, and they talked about how the history of Confederate monuments that a lot of the the monuments to soldiers came up in the uh, right after the Civil War, and they were like obelisks or. Mm-hmm. You know, kind of very, you know, very, I don't know, non-discreet. You know, they right, were like, uh, what are they like? A memorial? What are they? Memorials to the dead? Like the obelisk is kind of traditional, like just memorial to to like dead people. Yeah. So death. they were basically they talked about like three. There were three different eras of Confederate monuments. There were the monuments that came up right after the war, which were Confederate, that, which were monuments to the Confederate dead, and then there were monuments that came up around the turn of the century which were some of them were like uh, holdovers from like, you know, well, we just had the, um, what was it? The, like there were like 
there were some Confederate soldiers, there were some Confederate dead monument, but most of those were like Jim Crow, like there were the Jim Crow era monuments, which were basically, oh, hey, like, remember who's in power, like, remember who's in charge. Um, and then there right, were... And there's not even... Yeah, sorry, go ahead. No, I mean, but then it was like the, then like the 60s, it was like Jim Crow era and then like the Civil Rights era, like when the, like right. the three May, like right after the Civil War, Jim Crow era, Civil War era, were like, I mean, uh, Civil Rights era were the... Like we're in the, the monument, and uh, and they said most of the statues, like most of like the statues to specific people, came up in like Jim Crow or the civil rights civil rights era, like the civil. So. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's quite, and this has been mapped. Like, there's some great mapping that's been done on that, and about time, timing of them. Yeah, and even you know, if you read, if you go back and read the statements of the people who are erecting them, they say what they're they're for. There's not confusion about it. Yeah, and I think even they mentioned that in the article. There were a few like you know, this is why we're we're erecting these monuments to. I mean, to paraphrase it, but we're erecting these monuments to remind people who's in control. Um, right, and there's um, I was reading about uh, is it Silent Sam that's on the uh, UNC campus at Chapel Hill. Um, oh, I think someone's so. put a bag over his head, but it's kind of like the generic Confederate soldier, I believe. But at the dedication of it. Um, uh, which was paid for by the United Daughters of the Confederacy, which w- were responsible for a lot of these. Uh, you know, you have the spokesperson bragging about like beating beating black people at it. So it's not like they were like, hmm, let's memorialize uh, our fallen ancestors in the Civil War. It was definitely uh, for a reason, right? And not for the so, dead. And then, like, not for the and so. Another weird thing is that the people who support these kind of already ruin their own argument by saying. Uh, these, you know, these aren't monuments to white supremacy. That's not what it's about, but they're not important for organizing in that way. But then they're used as organizing points for white supremacist groups, right? So if they're not important to a white supremacist cause, why are white supremacist groups um, organizing around them? Right. I'm curious about in Charlottesville, who were the groups that came together because it was uh, they called themselves Unite the Right and yeah. I know that there were like I saw the flags and knew that and know that there were neo-confederates and neo-nazis and white supremacists but were there other people on the right who were not uh, extremists um, uh, who were part of the part of the organization so I mean, as someone who wasn't there, I don't know. But I, I, from the videos that I saw, I actually recognize people in them who were in New Orleans, right, that we confronted there. And I know there's a lot of the League of the South people. There was Identity Europa people. There was uh, Richard Spencer's people. Um, there are all these groups that... Uh, I mean, there's no, there would be no confusion if you accidentally mingle. There's no way to accidentally mingle in and and think, oh, these are kind of these random groups. I mean, they were all like hardcore militant white supremacist groups. Okay, right. Because well, I'm, what I'm curious about is, like, I guess it's it's harder and harder to tell when you have uh, Steve Bannon in the, you know, in the White House yeah. and uh, roaming the halls of the White House about the line between. But um, I hate to um, tar the whole right with the same brush. Um, 
And yeah. so I'm not, I'm not quite sure, but I, get, I keep seeing people who are, people who I think of as kind of um, mainstream Republicans, but, um, and, and many of them are saying kind of the right things and being appalled in the right ways, but others are doing basically what the president's been doing and saying, well, you know, there's two sides to everything. And we talked yeah. about that last time, I think, about, um, uh, you know, there's the slave owner side and the slave side, and the, the truth yeah. is probably somewhere in the middle. Mitt Romney yeah. came out. Mitt Romney came out and uh, spoke. Yeah, I know. Mitt, Mitt Romney's a hardcore Antifa now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um. Just like uh, Jeb Bush, who said, hell yeah, he would go back and murder Hitler. <laughs> So we got Jeb Bush and Mitt Romney are hardcore people now. Um, so that that's going for us. That'll work. Um, the whole country swinging to the uh, left, I guess. But you know, well, yeah, yeah, swinging to the left. He's going to donate his four-story parking garage to Antifa uh, grappling practice. Uh, um. So well, actually, there was a like. Did you see there was a tweet from uh, Carl Bernstein that was talking about um, that a lot in closed. Was it? I'm looking at it. Important conversation. Important Republicans are increasingly saying in private that the that Donald Trump is unfit to be president. And and so actually, uh, Felix from uh, Trapo Trap House replied to like he. Uh, reply to that saying like like fast forward to 2019 republicans are increasingly angry that trump in private are increasingly angry at trump in private for using the military to put up the stonewall jackson jerry sandusky hugging statue (laughs) (laughs) yeah i mean it's one of those like i have a friend who's hardest working guy in politics that i know but he was in the democratic party he was kind of posting today like well marco rubio's tweets are kind of encouraging and i was saying back to him it really doesn't matter you can grumble about stuff in private and tweet right you're going to support the legislative agenda right if you're not going to come out and say things are not acceptable and you're not going to participate in them it really doesn't right doesn't matter yeah and really what does mitt romney have to what does mitt romney have to lose (laughs) by political career yeah uh, his well, the idea that dollars. anybody would have something to lose by denouncing fascism and white supremacy right. is a pretty scary there, there idea. <laughs> there you go. But I mean, uh, I don't want to sound like uh, too dour, but like the uh, the situation we were in in New Orleans, and I feel like we're still in. I feel like you are putting yourself uh, at great risk for denouncing white supremacism, um, which is crazy. Yeah. Uh, it's a nutty, nutty place to be in, but um, there you are. I was so the Unite the Right thing. Uh, the person I believe who applied for the permit and was one of the chief organizers is Jason Kessler, who's the guy who got R U N N O F T from his press conference uh, and went stumbling through a bed of flowers, which was kind oh, of my yeah, favorite yeah. moment from this whole week with him trying to run away from people. And then he gets uh, and he got tackled by and he lady, got tackled you know? by like a, a lady in a sundress. He got <laughs> yeah. yeah, which was great. But he, I believe, applied for the permit, saying I'm trying to remember the exact language, but for like a demonstration for the white people and the white race. So it wasn't like there was much um, kind of leeway. Uh, in in what the the, the rallies were to be about, um, 
Do you know the numbers? More of people? Yeah. No, I don't. A lot. I mean, the the Park Service and different people are generally not great about coming up with those numbers anyway, but... Especially for something like this, where how many... Like, I think... I mean, I think that the white supremacist faction planned this out... Planned this out in a good detail. And how many people were out doing stuff in the street how many people did they kind of have on reserve how many people were lurking about like i don't know i don't know how you would count it um and it sounds like the the charlottesville police and the virginia police were gigantic fuck-ups throughout the whole thing um i will say as as many problems as i have with them and as horrible as they can be when we had these assholes in new orleans for the for the march where they were going to assault all of us, the LA or the Louisiana State Police, state troopers followed our march in four SUVs full of guys in SWAT gear, um, and coordinated. The local police coordinated uh, a lot with us to make sure that um, it wasn't going to get out of control, and that where people were going to be, and who the the main violent actors on the other side were. And so, um, yeah, for all the bad things about the police, like I, I think that, you know, having a march with the the Louisiana state state police and SWAT gear behind you is, is a um, can be a helpful thing. So it looks like low estimates are around like two thousand. Um, two thousand white supremacists. White supremacists. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And. You know, I never know how to take, like, there. Every firsthand account has a has a bias. I've, right. I've read a lot, and I've read some from people from Charlottesville who have said that um, though they don't agree with the way it's being portrayed as two sides confronting each other. They felt like for like a period of three or four days, their town had just been invaded right. by by white supremacists, and that when people started going out to confront them, they were attacked. So, uh, and then I think you also probably saw Cornell West's statement on mm-hmm. democracy now. I don't know if you catch that. Yes. Yeah, I listened to uh, it this morning. Yeah, and saying, uh, well, he was saying that, you know, they had organized what, like a prayer vigil. Right. And the, the white supremacists were marching to, to do something to them. And then that's when, you know, anarchists and Antifa uh, intervened. And there was a confrontation, but uh, Cornell West says, you know, they saved, they probably saved their lives. Yeah, like the yeah, like the the religious leaders had to basically hole up in a church for, you know, like for a certain period of time. While, mm-hmm. and you know that would that would very much echo what I saw in New Orleans, which was that, uh, um, you know, I I. I truly think that violence is nonlinear and it can get out of control and is very bad, but I'm very appreciative of anarchists and Antifa for being around when these maniacs show up with, with, uh, semi-automatic weapons. Um, uh, yeah. And, you know, I think, but I think a lot of what's going on is that like Berkeley and New Orleans, uh, where trial runs for these, these guys and that, you know, they very much got run off in New Orleans because um, 
I mean, it's their tactics and their strategies were bad, and they look they look silly. And so I think they kind of regrouped and realized that well, what they have to do is just go. If they want people to take them seriously, violence will be taken seriously, and so they ramp that up even more. And uh, <laughs> and I I don't think it's going to get better in the immediate future. Well, I think another thing that they changed was they didn't just camp out for weeks at a time. Mm-hmm. which wasn't really working for them. And the other thing is that they didn't go to an overwhelmingly African-American community. Oh, that's huge. Like, that's a huge one, I think. Yeah. yeah. Like, I'm not sure what the demographics of Charlottesville are, but I'm pretty sure Very they're not the same. I think they're not nearly what uh, New Orleans is. Right. Well, in New Orleans, they're very confined to where they could be in the city, where they're not, you know, if you're a a Nazi walking around with a gun in lots of places in New Orleans, you're not going to make it very far. Right. right? Because everyone has guns and very few people are white. Uh, So they were confined to, and they were very much outsiders, easy to identify as outsiders. Um, But, you know, it's weird to watch these videos because these are the same people. I I see people that I've confronted. I see, you know, the the um, that complete loser uh, baked Alaska who gets maced, possibly maced himself and then pours milk in his eyes and rolls around the ground for a while. (laughs) He he was, you know, I I was, you know, at least circle with him. And he's just he's one. So this is the thing. So. Some of these people are really hardcore white supremacists. Some of them are a racket. And I don't want to be those peop- one of those people who's like paid protesters, paid protesters. But for some people, this is a racket. And he's one of those people who's a racketeer who's trying to milk this. And so, you know, he was trying to film a woman who collapsed of heat exhaustion at Lee Circle. And him and his one of the, he's like little minions in um, like combat gear and like helmets. And so I was like, you know, you should probably... Stop filming that. And he's like, oh, I can, oh, this is the First Amendment rights, I can film. I'm like, You're, this, is, this is pathetic. You're filming someone who's collapsed on the ground so you can get, because they're constantly checking how many uh, likes they're getting on their, their live stream. <laughs> and so just when I tried to stand between him and the woman who was on the ground, like they ran off and like hid behind police and stuff. They're just like fools. They're absolute fools. So you have those like racketeers and then you have... Um, also, these people who I think are increasingly drawn to it, who are in it to kill people. Well, and, and also you know. like the guy you put up a clip on social media of yes, the guy who taken off his shirt and yeah. basically st- he got chased, and so he took off yeah. his white supremacist oh, yeah, 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 uniform. Yeah. And uh, so I'm not, was I'm not one of them. I'm just here for fun. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I like to be offensive. That's why. Um. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then the guy kept following him, asking when he's going to put it back on. <laughs> but that, you know, I know people disagree with me on this, and I know, you know, we've talked about this on here before, but that's why I think it's important to confront these people in public. But like I said, violence is nonlinear. So you're going to get the kids like that who, when are confronted, uh, give it up very easily. But then you have these other hardcore white supremacists who are going to go back, reconsider what they're doing and then I think just keep applying more violence because in America uh, violence equals being serious and so and because that's clowns, what they're there for for yeah, them certainly so, for, for them certainly that's what violence equals and also being taken seriously because they don't mm-hmm. they very often at least don't have the education or the argumentative skills 
or the linguistic skills or the money or the social clout to be taken seriously. And so making a big noise and then doing harm to other people is a shortcut to being, um, uh, to being taken seriously. Well, and also the argument itself is a losing argument. So, you know, you can, in that, in that case, maybe the violence will be taken seriously. And then, you know, there's, um, I don't know if you follow Redneck Revolt at all, but they are the uh, socialist, communist, maybe socialist, I'll say socialist, uh, left-wing um, kind of protection units. So they train with guns, with firearms, and they uh, protect these type of marches. And they have a report from on the ground there, too, which kind of links up with what Cornell West was saying, which was that they had to form a barricade across these kind of public spaces where these, these religious leaders were having uh, a prayer meeting or whatever and kind of like hold off, hold off Nazis with firearms. And that, you know, I'm very much a critic of gun culture, but I mean, in the, in the interim when all this is going on, like I, you know, I can't say that I completely disagree with their approach, although I think those things get out of control very quickly. Yep, it's a tough call. I mean, um, uh, the, that's one of the um, one of the false equivalencies is the idea that even if the left were just as um, prone to instigate violence as the right, the idea that that makes their ideologies equal, right? That, no, yeah, um, sure, um, because their it was working. So you, yeah, you were just saying that the tactics, yeah. So the ideology and the tactics, like I, yeah, I completely agree with that. Cause I was reading uh, the other day about you know like remote African American communities during Jim Crow where they were you know they were armed fighting off the KKK and the reason they survived is because they were armed and fighting off the KKK and I hate to think about being at that point again in history and I really you know like I said I really have serious reservations about gun culture uh, in America but that if, you know if we have you know white supremacists like this having free reign to run around your city then like uh, people having to protect themselves is something that's completely understandable well yeah I'm willing to shoot you to keep you from planting a bomb at my church Seems like a fairly yeah. reasonable, um, uh, fairly reasonable position to take. Right, or even you know, like we saw the footage of uh, Nazis beating a young black guy in the parking garage, and while they're being covered by another Nazi who's holding <coughs> a gun, right, to stop people from interfering. I I have no issue with all of those people getting shot. It does not bother me, right? But like I said, these things are nonlinear, and that that escalates. So you never you never know. Yeah. Um, and, and just the demographics of Charlottesville, you were saying, like, uh, I've heard from some mutual friends of ours who went to school there, and I've heard from other people at Charlottesville, is that you, and I'm saying this as someone who had never lived in Charlottesville, but you do feel isolated as a person of color in Charlottesville. Like, that it's not, that it's not a town that feels accepting. Uh, and that's anecdotal. That's from, but that's from people we know who've lived there. Okay. Um, I think it's like let. I saw the demographics earlier, but it's it's does not have a large African American population. 
Well, which he, might be part of why they chose it. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And I think I was re was it on maybe it was on the like Democracy Now had like two or three hours of programming oh, wow. where the like extra days, and they had an interview with um, like some students and a professor at the University of Virginia, and they were just talking about the ties that the Klan had to the university. I mean, like during the Klan's heyday, you know, they had a chapter like they had a campus chapter at UVA, but then I don't know how many colleges in the south had a clan had a chapter of the clan in its heyday uh, alabama alum knows maybe i shouldn't look into that yeah <laughs> i think they called it the new college did they call it the what? yeah yeah yes that was it the new college was our yeah, founded was, was it founded 1927 <laughs> i'm pretty sure the b school was our clan. Mm-hmm. i don't know um yeah, speaking of Charlottesville, though, my one of my favorite clips from the last few days was the vice mayor, Wes Bellamy. I don't know if you guys remember him, the African-American vice mayor no. uh, who, who was wearing a Black Panther backpack. <laughs> part of this, but um, I believe he's a doctor or a PhD. Oh, was he standing he, behind the mayor while the yes. mayor was talking? Yeah. Oh, yeah, that was, was the good. governor. It was the governor, wasn't it, McAuliffe? Oh, yeah, with the governor, that's when, right. Uh, he's like... Yeah. Nodding yes, 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 and then the governor gets to Thomas Jefferson being a hero, and he kind of stops. And it's like, yeah, that's. I want to talk about that real quick too, because that is one of those things. Um, as someone involved in politics, is really difficult because so Trump in his god awful press conference today uh, said the comments about well, George Washington was a slaveholder, Thomas Jefferson was a slaveholder. And, um, you know, as a leftist, uh, my uh, reaction is, yes, you're right. They were, they were bad. They were bad people. You're correct. Uh, but then, you know, to, to have kind of this pol- political rhetoric that you have to have to bring people in, in some ways you can't – you do have to make the separation between Robert E. Lee and George Washington and Thomas Jefferson. And I think that separation is there because, like we've talked about before, we talked about on the 4th of July show a lot, Jefferson – is this great figure who is great in his genius and great in his awfulness, right? And in many ways, George Washington is that, although not as much of a, a genius, he's still a great figure who, who kind of did things and was also a slaveholder. And, you know, that's making no excuses. Like, hold, being a slaveholder is, like, one of the worst possible things in humanity you can be. It's just saying that uh, they had many sides, as it were. They had many sides. So we can think about the complexity and the awfulness of them. Like Robert E. Lee, there's really, there, what, there's, no, there's no real other value besides that. Well, that's the thing. What's, the, what's the greatest thing that Robert E. Lee ever did for the United States? Yeah, nothing. Or for anybody, nothing. really. Even for and, the and Confederacy, the, he drugged the war out much longer than it should have been drug out. He, right. but, but partly due to ego, I think. Um, you know, he, he, he had personal qualities that made people like him, but right. you know, so that's did, uh, true of lots of monsters yeah. 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 and Mussolini. Yeah, sure. Right. I mean, tons of bad people we can think of, uh, were, had, um, personalities that drew people in. Right. And then a lot of that personality, a lot of that, that goodness is so much back figured onto him. Yeah. That how, how do you even know? Well, and then when it came uh, down to the big question, like slavery or no slavery, like I don't know. Right. <laughs> well, 
Well, I've been told that he really hated slavery and secession. Yeah. <laughs> hey. But a man's got to work, though. Man's got to pay the bills. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He, he, yeah. That's what he's just a hardworking. He's a hardworking man. Just, just normal Johnny paycheck. Time to make the donuts. But, Time to make the genocide. Oh. No. <laughs> What are you going to do? What, you, what can you do? And I always like it how, like, well, you know, he was offered to lead the North, but he was such a man of honor that he chose to lead the South. Like, <laughs> oh, yeah, that, a great choice, buddy. Uh, which one should I do? And then, you know, it's like, it's uh, well, it was a geographical allegiance. It's like, well, you know, there's tons of Southerners who chose not to fight for the Confederacy. Yeah, yeah, like, exactly. You know, I don't know. Or the geographical allegiance of like, well, now the Nazis occupy France. I guess we shouldn't have a resistance. Oh, well. What are we going to do? We're French. (laughs) That's ridiculous. Um, Speaking of which, I just want to point out, this has nothing to do with the South, with what we're talking about. Uh, I was going to recommend, there's a Jacobin article from last May. So now that, like, um, interestingly, this is really, is, is someone who's been, like, on the left and at, if not of, at black bloc kind of things since college at least, uh, Antifa being like a normal part of our conversation nationally is really strange to me. But uh, now that that's a big thing in the news, and it is because to be clear, like when when Donald Trump says uh, both sides, that's what he's talking about. But there's this great article from May, May 8th, 2017 in Jacobin called The Lost History of Antifa by Lauren Ballhorn. And um, it's really good. I recommend it. It talks about how Antifa, the first, uh, I'm really bad at German, but the anti-fascistish action was out of labor unions and kind of the Communist Party and the Socialist Workers Party in Germany, who actually at the time on the ground in the 1930s were fighting uh, Nazis, were fighting against the Nazis. And so uh, I think too often we talk about it as kind of some kind of weird, sudden thing that's happened, and it's not. It's a consistent uh, movement on the left to actively resist um, fascism, and I think that's important for people to understand when they're having their dumb Facebook arguments. Yeah, that, I mean, uh, if people just ignored, if people just ignored them, they would go away. I mean, the fascist. If people just ignored Nazis, they would go away. If people just yeah, said, well, that's kind of <laughs> right. If people just ignored that's kind of racism, is about it's not about seizing power at all. It's just kind of about getting out there, speaking your mind, uh, mm. and then you know, if you listen to their arguments and you kind of nod, and, and then you have, like, you know, a polite disagreement with them. They'll, they'll go away. Um, there's also another thing that's come out of this, and I don't know how much we talked about this before, but I really, I really, especially someone who works on a university campus, I hate this free speech argument that we have to give. It's free speech, and if we're shouting down these people and not letting them speak at universities or in public spaces, it's because we're scared to confront ideas. And this is something you hear from, like, uh, Joe Rogan and Michael Shermer, who else? Like people that I sometimes am interested in what they have to say, but I think it's such a bullshit argument because, like, the people on the left have been saying for a while now, at least the last two years, like what these people are trying to do is organize and recruit, and that's why they're showing up on college campuses. They're trying to provoke and organize right. and recruit, and we are under no obligations to let them do that. 
And then, so uh, Nathan D'Amigo, the former Marine and former felon who is one of the organizers of this Unite the Right, um, says, there's a really good, I'm trying to find the article, I read it recently, it's very good, and it's a long-form article, about this, his very specific agenda with this stuff is to start um, kind of activating young white males, college-age males, even uh, like college, students who are in colleges uh, to be part of this, and that's why they're do, that's why they're doing this. They're doing these very specifically with the, re, with the reasoning to kind of recruit and engage these people. And the one that I think I was say about New Orleans is I remember being at Lee Circle, and we weren't really kind of the idea of the march was we, we weren't going to confront uh, the white supremacists. And, but it ended up there was some yelling back and forth. I remember this one anarchist yelling at them, you guys only exist on the Internet. You only exist on the Internet. And um, kind of Nathan D'Amigo and then some of the other leaders I saw in the Vice piece on Charlottesville, which was pretty good, were saying that they kind of realize that. Like, they're doing this stuff to demonstrate that they're mm -hmm. not just on the Internet, even though that's kind of what they're a product of, the kind of 4chan chat rooms and Stormfront, Daily Stormer, and all that, all that stuff. Well, and then I guess also, like, sort of there's, like, this um, kind of, I don't know, this might be related or unrelated, but there's the whole thing I've been seeing a lot of, um, we'll see like all Trump, all Trump voters are racist, but then other people say, well, not all, this is just a select group of Trump voters, or this is a select group of people. But then it, I mean, I think, well, what, what, what am I trying to say? I'm trying to that it's, I don't know. Is it any worse to be like, well, I'm not really racist, but I think I like I like to hang out with racist people or is that any is that any better than being racist or I don't I don't know. Do you does that make any sense when I'm. Yeah, no, that's what I've been experiencing a lot. Uh, and I should probably not be on Facebook, but that's what I've been experiencing a lot there from like people like that I went to high school with and stuff. It's like, well, this is an outlier. And it's like, you know, but like at what point can you not tolerate that outlier anymore. And I, I try to be critical of myself in these things. So one rule about politics I always have is like if a president, so for example, President Obama, who I voted for, if he does something that I, I can't figure out if I have a problem with it or not, I try to think if President Bush had done it, would it have bothered me? So like, you know, U.S. involvement in Yemen, drone strikes, those things bother me. If President Bush had done them, they would have bothered me. So it's not intellectually honest of me to not be bothered when Obama does them. But I think, like, you know, it's where, at what point do you draw the line and not being able to be associated? So it's like, for me, the really breaking point with President Obama was, yeah, like Yemen and drone strikes and things like that, even though I hated the way he handled the housing crisis. But I don't no, that wasn't enough for me to say I won't vote for him, I won't be a part of this party. Maybe it should have been, I don't know. But I wonder for Republicans, when is it enough to say, like, okay, so the white supremacists are outliers, but they're clearly a strong facet of a political movement that you're involved in. Like, when, when is that enough to make you, like, step away? I don't well, know. Well, there's a certain amount of truth to the old um, adage that um, Democrats fall in love and Republicans fall in line. I think it takes yeah. a little bit longer yes. for 
um, Republicans to leave the fold because they like hierarchy. And there's a lot to be said for hierarchy. I'm not condemning that per se. Just that... um, And I think that maybe there's more of the idea of team play for uh, Republicans, although I see it a lot from Democrats these days, too. The idea that if Democrats are doing it, it's okay no matter what. And that's been bothering me a lot, especially about the uh, Charlottesville stuff. I've been looking at people who say that um, um, people should be punished for having different opinions and for voicing those opinions rather than for breaking the law. And it's like the law should only punish you for breaking the law. There should be consequences to your action. You know, if you go out and start screaming racist slogans in the middle of the street, everybody should know that you're doing that and let the chips fall where they may. But you shouldn't be hunted down for it. You shouldn't be put in jail for it. Uh, Maybe, I mean, depending on exactly what the nature of the uh, speech is, whether it's threats or incitements or whatever. But just in general, um, I think that... um, it's, it's hard for Republicans, it seems, to break with the party. Yeah, well, you know, they've done so much work over the last 30 or 40 years of building it as a tribal identity instead of a party, right? And so that's what Fox News is about. That's what Rush Limbaugh was about, right? Like, you, you pick your tribal identity, and then they supply you with a narrative um, for better or worse, Democrats have been bad at that. In some ways, I wish we were better, but in some ways, it's nice that we don't don't have to have a tribal identity. Although, look, I'm not saying that Democrats are 100% innocent of that. Like, there's a lot of dumb shit that Democrats I was, do. But hmm? I was just last night listening to um, John Ronson um, uh, talking about his book about being publicly shamed and about how. Um, you get momentum going online of scolding people and of um, uh, the, the, the left can certainly be just as bad at um, uh, taking a great deal of pleasure in wrecking people's lives for having mm-hmm. bad ideas. Right. Yeah. And I, you know, so, for example, there was the, the college student who was found out for being, you know, the photograph was taken of him screaming in the Nazi rally. And there was talk about him being kicked out of school, but I don't want him to be kicked out of school. But I also want, you know, there's also no problem with his classmates knowing exactly who he is and having his, you know, he showed up at a public rally in a public space. And, you know, there he is. Like, so I don't think it's up to the the school to kick him out of school. Uh, you know, I think it's it's up to him to deal with the ramifications of his, his public life. Yeah. Right. And I think that's a, that maybe that's what I'm driving at is that it seems to me that um, on the left where we're the most mob mentality and maybe we're more um, um, a mob than a sort of regimented team, um, but where we're the most a mob mentality is where people's rational idea about legality and about free speech and about uh, civil liberties and all that start to get mushy when it's the other side doing it. Mm -hmm. Like, I haven't heard a lot of people talking about the American Civil Liberties Union uh, during this time of um, 
protests at the American Civil Liberties Union or demonstrations that the American Civil Liberties Union would certainly go to court to defend those fascists. Um, so, yeah, maybe maybe because you're on Twitter you missed it, but there has been a huge controversy about that, a Twitter controversy, so as huge as that can be. But, you know, the ACLU are free speech absolutists, which I think is fine, and so they, you know, supported this rally, or supported is a weird word to use. They... Uh, in their set of beliefs, think that, it, that these things can happen. And people got really upset about that and said, I'm not donating to the ACLU anymore. But I, I don't feel that way. I feel that I understand what the ACLU's role is, and they're not always going to be on my side because they're free speech absolutists, right? That's what they're there for. So they should do that. It doesn't mean I have to agree with them all the time or like what that looks like, but that's, that's what it is. Yeah. Well, um, are we going to talk about the floods? Yeah, I want to talk about that, and I also want to talk about the news that's coming in right now about the Alabama Senate race, which I know you've been following very closely. I live you know, for that stuff. Know. Yeah, so you know, Jeff Sessions uh, vacated his Senate seat um, to become the greatest attorney general in the history of America. And, this year. Uh, yeah, and so, yeah, this year. And so they're having uh, the runoff elections right right now to see who gets to face the Democrats. So it's Alabama. Have fun. But with 92% reporting right now, uh, everyone's favorite judge, Roy Moore, has 39.5% of the vote. And uh, Strange, old Strange, <laughs> has 32% of the vote. And I thought, Luther, you know... Uh, Luther Strange. Luther Str- yeah. Yeah. And I thought, you know... Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I don't think it was a coincidence that Donald Trump endorsed Strange. He's just, Donald <laughs> Trump was, uh, well. Yeah, I think yeah, he's been uh, uh, trying to get. The campaign slogan, everybody should get a little strange. <laughs> yeah. Uh, really he's been, I think he's been trying to get strange in Washington for a while. <laughs> <laughs> um. Um, so, yeah, but, you but know. Strange, you, was taint, strange was sort of tainted, wasn't he, by. Oh, no, <laughs> Um, Um, uh, But he was um, uh, implicated in, um, he received the seat from a person who he was investigating, is that right? Something like that. He was supposed to be investigating the governor, and the governor appointed him to to be the senator to take Mm -hmm. Sessions' place, is that right? Uh, something like that. I think so, yeah. But, well, we all know in Alabama they love the governor. They, they did. We all did what we could do. Yeah. Um, so part, part of the – one of my favorite uh, lines in a story about this is that uh, <laughs> uh, Moore – this is Moore – at his final campaign stop speaking to the gun rights organization Bama Carey at a <laughs> Chinese buffet restaurant in Birmingham. <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> Um, so, and then, you know, Roy Moore has been running, well, it was, so Mo Brooks was part of this too. And so they, they started running ads depicting Mo Brooks, who's like part of the Freedom Caucus as the liberal, the liberal candidate. (laughs) And then Roy Moore is like the real American. He's riding around on his horse named Sassy. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh. Uh, and and so, but it looks like Roy Moore, who refuses uh, 
to honor uh, gay marriage, uh, even if it's in the Constitution, and um, is most famous for putting giant statues of the Ten Commandments on courthouse grounds. Is um, is very very. It looks like he's going to win. And uh, where's this part? Yeah. So um, Brooks. This is Mo Brooks that is lost. Mo Brooks, a flinty member of the House Freedom Caucus who frequently bucks his party leadership, has been the main focus of the SLS attacks. The most damaging spots of played back year-old footage of Brooks, then a supporter of Ted Cruz's presidential bid, criticizing Trump. Evidence, according to the SLF, that Brooks was on the same side as liberal Democrats. Huh. So yeah, so Ted Cruz supporters are yeah, liberal Democrats. So yeah, this is Alabama politics, and it's all going to be horrible and bullshit. And in accordance with American 2017, Roy Moore, Judge Roy Moore, completely abhorrent American, is probably going to be a senator. Oh, but here's Luther Strange uh, handling a snake. <laughs> Luther Strange handles a rat snake during a campaign stop in Heflin, Alabama. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about the flooding. So um, right before I left for Japan, my six-year-old was going to start first grade. And so we got him all ready for school on his birthday, drove him out to his school and found out school was canceled all through New Orleans that day. So let me ask you two, do you know why school was canceled in New Orleans last Thursday? I do. I do. And it was... Uh, because the pumps weren't pumping out all the water. <laughs> because yeah, because we have a because uh, New Orleans we have a pumping system that keeps the city from drowning from drowning. And not only was the pumps weren't working, it's that they are powered by this kind of ancient power supply where I think they have like <laughs> burn burn peat bogs or something and like a kiln to power the pumps, to spin the turbine to power the pumps. And a fire broke out at that station. Uh, a fire broke out in the station, which <laughs> decreased its capacity to produce enough power to run the pumps. So because we had two days of rain forecast, they couldn't send kids to school because um, the pumps didn't work. And so what happens in a city, as you can imagine, when you can't send kids to school, everything gets messed up. So for example, I had to go to my bank which opens at 9 in the morning, but it wasn't open because people were out trying to find what to do with their kids when the schools are closed. Uh, so I think it is a loaded term to refer to a city like New Orleans as a third world country and can be a very racist thing to say. But in terms of infrastructure, uh, it's amazing to me that in the richest country in the world in the 21st century, um, we shut down our schools because the fire a fire breaks out in the turbine station for the water pumps that keep our city uh, intact. Well, I passed through New Orleans on my way south. You were there. Just yeah. for a weekend and got stuck under the bridge. Not under the bridge, under I-10 on Claiborne. Uh, mm -hmm. near Broad, uh, no, near, um, oh, I forget what the cross street was. But regardless, it was... Um, um, actually kind of okay. It was a little bit of a pain because people pulled in behind us and blocked us in. And when it turned into a party, which things inevitably do in New Orleans, um, I was pretty okay with that, but I thought, I don't really want to be here when it goes full on New Orleans under the interstate party. Yeah. yeah. 
Well, and but you know, a lot of people in Mid City lost their cars. So a uh, friend of the podcast, Ari, uh, had her car totaled, and she is like me, out of the country doing dissertation research. So that sucks. And then uh, the Jap- the local Japanese school, um, the person who had all of the fundraising goods that were going to be sold for fundraising. They were mm-hmm. in the trunk of her mm-hmm. car, and her car sank. Mm-hmm. So all her fundraising stuff. So it's like one of those, and it's also another one of those. Like, you know, we had a year ago at this time in Baton Rouge, we had once in a hundred year flooding. And then now we have, again, in New Orleans, once in a hundred year flooding. And I know I don't need to convince anybody that listens to this podcast that climate change is real, but uh, yeah. I think we just need to convince people to redefine what once in a hundred years flooding is. Yeah. Like a hundred, you mean yeah, days? Sure. Like once in a hundred days? Yeah. Right. Well, now that we're orbiting faster. Well, actually, one a hundred-year flood actually doesn't mean once every one hundred years. It means there's a one out of a hundred percent chance. Yes, I'm glad you were here to tell us that, that <laughs> person. Thank you. Yeah. So, but so do do the statistics on it real quick. Do the work, the probability on it real quick. So, what are the chances you get? Two 100-year events back-to-back. Um, In back-to-back years. One out of 10,000. Oh, there you go. Yeah, and so, so when it happens next year. next year, what will it be then? <laughs> It'll be one out of like a million. Which means, which actually means statistically speaking, is that is, that's way below the p-value. That's way below our p-value of 5%. So our model is not accurate. Our model of one in a hundred year flood, like our model of when it's going to flood is not accurate, which means we're all going to die. (laughs) So you're saying these are the best of times, these are the worst of times. Yes. Well, mainly the worst. Except for the best part. (laughs) Except for the best part. An age of dryness, an age of flooding. Hmm. That could be. It's the the dialectic of... uh, of uh, Jean Valjean. Or <laughs> yeah. <that. laughs> yeah. Um, All I'm saying well, is you better get your, for get your bread. <laughs> yeah. That is a story for another day. And I think that is a good stopping point for our podcast this week. See you guys right. next week. Uh, yeah, it's good to be back um, uh, back, back in different rooms from you guys. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's good to finally be separate.